October is Missions Month here at Westside, and last Sunday night we had Kirk Eason speak to us, and tonight we are going to have Kirk Israel. See, see our missionaries need to be named Kirk, is what we're figuring out. <laughs> Just kidding. Tonight, Kirk Israel from the Green Mountain Church of Christ, uh, he, his wife Karen is with him. He has been the minister of the Green Mountain Church of Christ in Castleton, Vermont, since 2013. This is our fifth year of our congregation supporting Kirk and Karen. Uh, January will actually be six years. Uh, Kirk has spoken to us before, and his message is always uh, uh, great, and uh, he's one that is uh, truly seeking and uh, saving the lost. So if you will, uh, welcome Kirk up here, and we look forward to your message, Kirk. I was thinking about a way to build rapport with all of you, and then I thought, I'm going to look around and see if there are some men who have some similar characteristics to I do. And I see there's a great number of you out there. <laughs> some of you aren't there yet, but Furman, I don't think you're ever going to have this problem. So if you would, turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. But before I begin, let me tell you about Vermont. Um, right now, we are headed into peak fall foliage. When we were leaving our house to get on the plane to come here, the trees were just phenomenal. The reds, the yellows, the sumac, it's just the brightest red you've ever seen uh, bursting on the trees. And everywhere you look from the bottom of the mountain to the top, the colors are just bursting everywhere. It, it was fantastic. Now look, when I say this, don't run out to get your parkas, but when we left home, it was 33 degrees. Uh, during the days, it's getting up into the 60s. Um, the grass is growing like crazy. Our congregation is starting to grow again. Uh, COVID really uh, put a stall on our work, and, uh, and so now we're beginning to grow. Uh, our congregation, we have spent um, all of last winter and part of this summer teaching them individually how to evangelize in one-on-one -on -one studies with them where they uh, get to challenge me as the non-believer so that I can ask them all the thousands of questions that I've been asked. And, uh, or statements that have been made to me and have to rebut. And each one of them now has been talking to their family members and their friends and, uh, and to their co-workers. And so our congregation, we expect it to grow over this next year. We have a lot on our uh, plate for next year and we share that with the mission committee and I think um, they saw that we, we're gonna tackle a boatload of stuff. That's a Vermont term, by the way, a boatload, because they don't have boats in Texas, do they? Sand boats, maybe, I don't know. So, so anyway, we're, uh, we're working and uh, working hard. We're studying the Bible uh, all the time. We're, we're teaching uh, strictly from the Bible uh, always. We're trying to avoid topical messages as much as we can just because our congregation needs to hear and learn the text. And, and so what I'd like to do is share with you um, a, a piece of scripture um, in John chapter 3. We're going to look at uh, 1 through 20, and if you don't mind, I'm going to be indulgent and read the text to you before we start. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, 
a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? <laughs> I, I got to just stop for a second. I, I want you to know, I want you to know, I'm sorry. I didn't become a Christian until I was 39 years old. I, I was raised by atheist parents. They were divorced when I was young. I had no one to ever share the gospel with me, and I never spent one day in church until I reached about 37 years old of age. Not one day. No one ever talked to me about the gospel except for one time I was working on a heavy construction site in northern New England when a gentleman tried to broach me and teach me the gospel. And having been raised by atheist parents, I had all the answers. And I want you to know that in that time, there is no God when I was a young man. Today, here I am standing in front of you talking about Jesus. You see, you have no idea about the transformation that can take hold of you and change your entire life if you're just willing, just open to the teaching of the Bible. There are four passages of scripture that I think are one of the most, four most important pieces of scripture to always grasp onto. The first one's in Deuteronomy 4, 2, and it says not to add or subtract from the word. Think about that. You're not to add or subtract from the word. The second is in Proverbs 30, verse 6. It says basically the same thing, not to add or subtract from the word. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, do not add or subtract from the word. Paul lives as an example with Apollos for the Corinthian church so that they know not to add or subtract from the word. And lastly, it says it again in Revelation in chapter 22 in 18, 19, and 20. You know, when we start talking about the Bible, we're talking about God's word here. We're not talking about our opinions because everybody has a belly button, don't we? There's no need to put our opinions in or to inject our own thinking. We're to say what the Bible says. One of the things that I enjoyed about Eric's sermon today was it was nothing but the Bible. 
It really lifted me up because I spent all my time talking and less time listening. And one of the things that I need, brother, is I needed your words. It was very, very encouraging to me. When I think about Nicodemus, though, I think about his behavior and my behavior. Back before I was a Christian. Now look, when we go on here, it says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not, do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So everyone is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, and he said to him, you are the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes, in, will, believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Let that rest on your shoulders for just a second there. Verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Who is Nicodemus? Did you ever think about it? Here is a man who is a Pharisee. He is an interpreter of the law, but he also is a ruler of the Jews. He's a man who speaks from what he understands and translates what he has been told and retranslated again and again, telling all of those that are not educated at the level he is, what the Bible is saying. That's who he is. He's a man who speaks what he thinks. He's a man who gives his opinion. He's a man there who understands something, though, here that really is kind of an incredible idea, isn't it? He says, this man came to, came to Jesus by night. Why would someone come to Jesus at night? Lest he be afraid that he would be seen by his peers. He would receive all kinds of problems if he see, is be seen by his peers. And he comes to him at night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. 
He didn't come out of the wind. He didn't come out of just nowhere. He came by God. By God. Look at what he says next. He says, for these, for no one can do these signs. If you've got a New American Standard or you've got a Bible with references in the margin, take a look over to the right there or to the left or in the middle, depending on which version you have. Mine says, or attesting miracles. You know, isn't it interesting that Nicodemus saw Jesus performing miracles, signs, and wonders? And he was intellectually able to connect that Jesus had been sent by God. And the signs, the miracles, and the wonders were what attested that he had been sent by God. Sometimes I wonder if we connect to that. Do we understand that these things that are written for our understanding so that we can understand God speaking to us, do we understand that these miracle signs and wonders were given to us so that we could understand that Jesus came from God? We know faith comes through hearing, hearing through the words of Christ. We know that that's where it comes from. But we have read about those all through the book of Mark. You're teaching it now. It's all through Matthew. It's all through Luke. Mark, or it's all through Luke. And we know that those miracle signs and wonders are an attestation of what Jesus, who he is and who he was sent from. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. I remember the first time I read this. I hadn't connected that Jesus was from God the first time I read the Bible. I started reading and I started looking at that and I started thinking, there's no way that these things are occurring in my time. I didn't realize the power of just God's word. And then you get down to verse four or to verse three and Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly. Do you ever wonder about that word truly, truly? Uh, when I think about it, I think about the military. When they yell, attention, they're talking about, can I have your attention? Here Jesus is saying, listen, listen, I have something important to say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I remember asking that question myself, the same one that Nicodemus said, how can a man be born again? I had no one to teach me what that meant. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? You think about it, I mean, is that not a ridiculous statement? He can't go back in his mother's womb. That's a ridiculous thought. He had to have understood that there was something greater to that than just that idea. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then he goes on and he says, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Listen, we all we have to do is walk outside this building and drive up and down the road and we can see church after church after church that is teaching doctrines that are not in the text. The wind is blowing and they have no idea where the spirit is going. They have no idea how to be saved. They have no concept of what it means to be saved. I had an experience. We worked at the state fair this year and I had a Seventh Day Adventist come up to me and he wanted to talk about the Bible. And I said, let's talk. And he said, well, before we can talk, do you believe that Ellen G. White is a prophet? And I thought, this man has never read scripture. He doesn't know that the canon is closed and he also doesn't know the history of Christianity. If you wanna know it, here it is in a nutshell. By the way, this event occurred nine miles from my house and it's where uh, William Miller resided. William Miller was a preacher who became, he was a deist when he was raised as a child, meaning he believed that God created everything and left it for man to deal with after he had created it and was going to have nothing to do with it. We all know that's not true, don't we? But he was in the Battle of Plattsburgh, and this is in the 1800s, and a mortar round landed at his feet and it killed everyone around him but him. And he said, this means that God has a mission for my life. And William Miller set out to define when Jesus would return mathematically. And he has this elaborate table. And if you ever uh, want to, you can go on Google or Uncle Google, as a friend of mine says, and take a look and see that um, he has a poster with all of the way he calculated. And so on October uh, 17th, in 1843, he said Jesus was going to return from the east and he took his congregation and they went outside of his house nine miles from where I live and they all stood on a rock and they uh, looked east and waited for Jesus to return. Do you know what happened? Not a thing. And then he went back and he looked at his math and he decided that he'd made a mathematical error. He didn't realize that the Hebrew calendar system was different from the Greek and so therefore he recalculated the date and it was October 17th of 1844. And so he gathered his congregation together and he brought them out and they stood facing the east and the exact same thing happened. When that happened, the newspaper, because that was the only form of media, uh, they ridiculed him until everyone in his congregation fell away. But he had a disciple that was working with him, and her name was Ellen G. White. And Ellen G. White, a week after this happened to William Miller, went to bed and had a dream that Jesus spoke to her saying that she was to preserve the Sabbath. Now, here's the interesting thing. If we know that the canon is closed and we know that it was completed around 100 to 150 AD, then how could Ellen G. White have received a message from Jesus when we're in the last age? Do you know what I mean by age? We have the patriarchal age, we have the mosaic age, and we have the Christian age. There are no ages after that, and the canon is now closed. 
So how could someone in 1843 or 44 receive a message from Jesus when God only spoke through Jesus at the end? So my response to him was, there's no possible way that Ellen G. White could be a prophet. You all realize that we're proclaimers, do you not? Our job is to proclaim the message that was given to us through the apostles. There is a doctrine for everything today. Jesus answered and said to him in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, in 11, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. I want you to know that that was a battle for me to accept the testimony of Jesus. It's the very reason why I am so compelled to teach the gospel to every person that I meet because one of my greatest fears is that I will have not spoken to every single person I encounter about the gospel. I had an experience when I was in the uh, fire marshal's office where they sent me to Emmitsburg, Maryland to the National Fire Academy. And there I had decided right after I had been baptized that I was going to teach the 30 some odd men that were gonna be in my class at the National Fire Academy. And while I was there, I tried to teach every one of them one at a time. Every time we met for breakfast, I would try to teach. Every time we met for lunch, I tried to teach. Every time we met for dinner, I tried to teach. And I got to every single person in my class but one. That morning, he didn't show up for breakfast. And all my friends that were there with me kept encouraging me, don't worry, Kirk, you'll get to talk to him. And then we went to lunch and he didn't show up. And I was nervous. I was like, did he leave early? I felt bad that I didn't get to teach him. At two o'clock in the afternoon as we were heading to dinner, we took a break from class and the administration came into our classroom. And in that moment, the faculty announced that that young man had died in his bedroom that night. He had choked to death on his food. And I always wondered, what if? What if I'd had one opportunity to teach him the gospel? And from that day forward, it has driven me, driven me to teach the gospel everywhere I go, to every person I meet, to everyone that I can talk to about Jesus. Because it is so, so important. The question is, is how do you measure the level of importance with regard to teaching Jesus in your own life? What is the measurement that you have where you will let your friends, your family, your teachers, your co-workers, your mother, your father walk by you and not accept the gospel? What is the measure that you use? Take a moment. What is the standard that you use? I'm going to be a short-winded preacher, so that'll be a blessing for some. But I want you to think, take a minute as we go down through the text here and listen carefully to where my measure is. I think you'll be able to figure it out. In 12, it says, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You guys know the story of the serpent, don't you? Where Moses puts a serpent on a post and sticks it out, and every time a snake would bite one of the Hebrews, they would look back and by faith believe that they would be healed and they would be healed. Numbers chapter 21, verse 9 is where it begins, if you need to know the text. Jesus is saying he is the same way that men will turn and see him hanging on the cross and they will turn by faith and believe and be saved. But is that the standard that you use to decide who hears the gospel? Would that be a standard that you could actually use? In verse 15, it says, So whatever believes will in him have eternal life, concluding Jesus' statement about him being lifted up. In 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a promise, is it not? But is it the standard that you measure the people that you come in contact with? Look at 17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the process. In verse 18, heads up, 18. He who believes in him is not judged. Here's the measure. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Now look, when you go up to your friends and to your family and to your co-workers and you start to talk about Jesus and they say, don't judge me. I want you to know something. When you talk to them using scripture, you're not the judge. God is the judge. The issue is, will you meet the obligation and eliminate your standard by just trying to qualify with them whether they're saved or not, according to Scripture, which Eric did an excellent job in proclaiming today. It's probably the finest I've heard in a long time, Eric. I want you to know that is the standard. Every person you see around them if you know they're not in the Lord's church, they're already judged. It's your job to find out if they're in the Lord's church or not. If they're not, you are obligated to proclaim the gospel. You're to go into all the world proclaiming the gospel. That's what drives me to bring the gospel to every single person I meet. Listen, Vermont is the least religious state in the nation since 2009, there are 650,000 people in this state, and Karen and I know all 200 of the Christians that live there among the six churches. We know them all. We don't have to pre-qualify. We already know that if they're not one of our brothers and sisters in Christ among the six churches, they have already been judged. Now look, I don't know about Texas, 650,000 sounds doable for one or two people, doesn't it? Look at how it closes. For everyone who does evil hates the light. How do you define who does evil? 
Have you ever thought about that? Is it evil not to obey Jesus? And is the Great Commission not his commandment? Is that evil? Is it wrong? Is it sinful not to obey when you have placed yourself into the service of the king? The word Christ means king. We who have placed ourselves into his service are servants. We are obligated to the king. To disobey the king is to be evil. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You see, when you bring the good news to somebody and they reject it, that work has been manifested as wrought in God. You have been obedient to the king. How do we wrap this up? I told you about Karen and I competing the last time I was here. We have a seed planting competition between the two of us. Right now, I'm winning, Karen. Look at all these people. You can't count them all, but I can. What we do is we try to get in a conversation where we can quote one verse of scripture. I told the families class what my favorite verse is, and that's 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John says, these things I have written so that you may know you have eternal life. The very first things that come out of my mouth is, do you know whether you're going to heaven or not? And their response will be, gee, I hope so. Maybe, if I'm good enough. And that's when the work begins, because we know if they don't know whether they have eternal life, then they've not heard the gospel. It is a great opportunity to have the conversation about who Jesus is and who he is as the Son of God and God himself. Thank you. Kirk, we want to thank you and Karen for all the work that you do and, and laboring in the kingdom there. And uh, we want to continue to lift you up in prayer as, you, as your work continues. And I'm not sure who I'll root for in that competition, but uh, I wouldn't want to compete against Karen, I'm sure. So we're thankful that you've been here with us tonight. And as we do each time that we are together, we want to offer the opportunity for you to respond. Um, as Kirk talked about, if you weren't here this morning, Eric spoke very capably, uh, instructing us in the word of God about how to become a Christian and, uh, and the blessings of being a Christian and, uh, and the safety and the security that we have in Christ. And I, I, you know, as Kirk talked tonight about just being, beginning his life and for the first 37 years of his life, being an atheist raised by atheist parents, when the word of God is honestly sought in honest hearts, it takes root. And when that seed is planted, a Christian is born. And, uh, and, and there's many things that we can learn from the life of Kirk and the labor and the passion that he has. Uh, and I've sat with Kirk before and listened to the passion that he has about and the urgency that he has to plant that seed so that others may know the gift that we have been given and as Eric spoke about the, the, from Corinthians, the treasure that we have that we need to take to others, and, and Kirk certainly does that, and we're, we appreciate your example. But as I mentioned, as we are gathered together as a body, 
we want to give the opportunity, if you have any needs tonight, perhaps as, as you've, you've thought about your own life and you've got questions and perhaps you've already come to the decision that, uh, that you need to put Christ on in baptism to have your sins forgiven, there's no better time and there's no need to wait. If you've got questions, then this is an opportunity for you to come. If you're not comfortable coming now, find one of the elders or, uh, or, or Furman or Eric, and we'll be happy to study with you. If you're a member of the body but if, are in need of prayer, this is a great time. We are a family and would love to be, to have you come and, and allow us to pray with you. If you have any need at all, come now as God leads us in, in the song of invitation. <laughs>